0: to the gamesandstreet.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor and I'm joined this week by
1: Matt Andrahan.
2: Marie Delisandri.
0: Uh, Chris Green. Plenty to talk about this week. Uh, still kind of centred around the pandemic and how it's affecting the industry. We're going to start off today with comments from Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella. Um, now he was in an interview with the New York Times. He was talking about uh, the how the industries and various tech industries are kind of Recover from this from this pandemic. Um, he said there are going to be three three phases. Essentially, we've seen the initial response, which is everyone's closed their offices and moved to working at home. Then there's the recovery stage, which some nations are in, some nations and businesses are undergoing. And finally, there will be the reimagining phase, where companies kind of adapt their operations and take on lessons that they've learned from home working and remote working, um, and make them a more permanent basis. However, he's not convinced that we will all shift to a permanent homeworking situation. Uh, he believes that replacing uh, offices with permanent remote setups is replacing one dogma with another dogma. Uh, he continued, what does burnout look like? What does mental health look like? What does that connectivity and the community building look like? One thing I feel is that, hey, we, maybe we are burning some of the social capital we built up in these phases while we are all working remote, but what's the measure of that? um he added that while virtual meetings often start and end on time he misses physically being in a a room with people so they can connect with them you know the two or two minutes before or after rather than everything right okay we've finished our discussion it's done everyone logs off he misses kind of that chat which chris you and i still have i'll be honest we we have our meetings and then we end up chatting for another 20 minutes (laughs) it's because because neither of us can find the leave meeting button james no Um, we can't (laughs) we just go oh should we just have a chat (laughs) But yeah, what do we what do we think? Like, I, I can, I, I, can certainly can't see companies as large as Microsoft going permanently remote working. But I can perhaps see smaller companies. But we we can talk on that a bit later.
1: Yeah, well, I think I think in part it, it, the question underpinning all of this is um, that there seems to be an assumption that the COVID nineteen pandemic will leave the world in a constant state of anxiety about there being another pandemic. That seems to be it for me, right? So we are, you know, Nadella outlines a couple of stages, you know, so the it hits and it rises, then there's recovery, then there's rebuilding. I mean, the rebuilding happens in a world where we're, what we're working towards is suppressing the COVID-19 pandemic. and And it sort of being relegated it it may never go away entirely it might just be one of the there's a certain number of diseases that are just (coughs) in constant circulation but it will become one of those but that I think a lot of this talk about permanent paradigm shifts in the way we work interact with each other seem to be speaking from a position of nothing will ever be the same again now where no one's ever going to want to be in an office with other people through risk of contracting Either that virus, other viruses. I don't know. I don't follow that. Um, I think I actually like... people are people need human inter- interaction. There's a there's a mental health aspect of this that is far far bigger than any any anxiety among people who you know speak often and and quite vocally about their anxiety their their personal anxieties around interacting with other people after this. I, I don't see. A whole industry changing the way that they work with each other, um, not meeting each other in public on a regular basis, when the COVID nineteen threat is is as minimal as as other diseases that are in kind of constant circulation.
2: Yeah, you no, know, I agree. I agree with you. I I feel like there's not going to be a all of a sudden a, a, a shift in in how the industry works. I think we're all remote working for now, but like if there, there there will be some more flexibility, I believe, that's going to be built in going forward at some companies that all of a sudden have realized that working from home is a thing and it it is possible. There's one thing to mention, though, that it's different to be remote working full time and to work from home during a pandemic while you also have your children, roommates, parents uh, in the same um flat as you uh, and I think there's a lot of that that's been going on when people think this is remote working when it's obviously a completely different situation when there's a lot as Matt just said of anxiety going around as well um, so yeah I, I don't believe that there will be a permanent remote working situation in the long run um, and I think actually that people are going to go back to normal way too quickly um, because some some people are just keen to go back to normal and won't maybe won't try to learn anything from what just happened, but that <laughs> might just be the cynic in me. No, ah. I mean the, the
0: the beaches of the UK currently back you up on that. Exactly,
2: so. oh, that's that's exactly what I was thinking about while I was saying this. Actually, yeah. I'm like I'm just baffled by how quickly people have gone back to so some some aspects of their life without thinking whether or not it's a good idea. Yeah. I, it, I'm just.
3: Yeah, know yeah, yeah. I, I think it's more. Than, well, it's more because they've been locked up at home for eight weeks. Apparently, Brighton Beach. is quite Well, quiet.
2: I've been locked up at home for eight weeks, and I'm not going to the beach. Am I?
3: Yeah, but you're not representative of the entire population. The um, the, there is. I. Mean, no, what, I what I mean is, is why it's you know it's middle of it's the middle of the week. It's unusual to have a beach packed in the middle of the week um, during a school term. <laughs> but you know, it's, but obviously, it's. I'm just talking about the situation, um, but um. But yeah, no, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't really like, like I know for a fact, like I've spoken to every AAA studio I've spoken to is now going to be working, have developed flexible working now. Now they know how to do working from home. They're desperate for staff, right? They've all got like jobless hiring on their website of about 20, 30 people they can't find. And now they can hire people from around the world without having to, without them having to be in the office. Um, so they are, and they will do that because everyone else is going to do it. Creative Assembly said it in interview in, in the day they've got tons of jobs going, and they uh, and they're going to be um, now looking to hire people from in different countries because they can. Isn't it? why? Why? Why would they? They because they have now learned how to do this, of course. But I don't. You know, I think the idea. I don't. I, I'm surprised actually when I saw the statements. I thought was was there an expectation that everyone would suddenly work from home. I I, I I didn't think that was, but, you know, I understand it's quite realistic, but I think there's an article on the BBC today. I think flexible working for almost everywhere is going to be now commonplace. I think, you know, the ability to work from home occasionally, it's not even going to be a big deal. Um, and the way we work, actually, you know, Gamer network works, you know, someone goes, oh, no, I'm going to work from home today. You can do that. And I think we're going to see more and more companies embrace that. And that's all, That was happening anyway before the pandemic. I think now that's accelerated. But yeah, I, I, don't, I, don't agree. I don't think the idea of everybody suddenly working from home, I don't think people want that. Yeah, <laughs> I, well, I, I mean, but,
1: but you know, the, 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 the Nadella interview is kind of evidence that there has been a fairly extreme view of this. And I, I've noticed it since the very first days of the pandemic. I mean, Twitter is <clears throat> very often the source of these kind of perspectives on what people think. And obviously Twitter is terrible for that because generally speaking, the, the stuff you pick up on Twitter from people who really, really talk a lot um about what they think and feel and make sure everybody knows what they think and feel and i I saw from the very earliest days people say right there can't ever be developer conferences again now can there now that we've had a year where it wasn't possible how can they ever be possible again and same with 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 working those are i mean i those opinions come from people who are concerned about the safety of others but that doesn't make them non-extreme opinions those are extreme opinions they don't aren't really truly rooted in in the facts of the situation we currently live in and the facts of what the world is going to be like after COVID-19 uh, uh recedes I think Chris is absolutely right I mean what Nadella is but Nadella is responding to people with that view right and and that view does seem to be rooted in the idea that we're not going we we're people are going to refuse to work from offices because of the risk to their health. Um, I really don't understand that point of view at all. I, I think people are already probably quite willing to to, to take what risk um, is posed to their posed to their health by, by returning to work in, in, in great numbers. I mean, obviously there's plenty of people that won't, but I think that's why that's you'll see some flexibility. And what it's really done is it showed, as Chris says, that if you have the right processes in place, you can be a bit more flexible, but that doesn't mean kind of, Everybody shutters their offices and starts working virtually. It just means that now you have the option and that you can turn that option to your advantage by hiring from people in other com, com- countries and so on. I think the the question is which sort of business functions will we be able to do that with? which ones will always have to be have access to your to your regular office i mean e- even in gamer network or readpop or whatever we're called these days <laughs> there are certain people in the company that really wouldn 't be able to get away with not being able to visit the office on a regular basis just to have those meetings and those check-ins and so on and so forth like i i i found it much much easier to not have to visit an office before i became the editor-in-chief of this website as soon as i did I really kind of needed to be in the office every now and again prior to that i could be in the office twice a year and it didn't really make any difference you know those, those are the kinds of things where you'll continue to need an office and whether or not COVID is something you can continue to catch in the future will not make any difference to that. I don't
0: think. On that point, I'm kind of intrigued to see, and again, it will be dependent on job dependent on your, your roles or your responsibilities, whether this kind of uh, opens people's eyes or emboldens them to apply for kind of broader jobs. So if you're, if you're a developer, for example, um, you know, in any form of development, like in, in the UK or anywhere, there, there's generally hubs of studios. So, if you want kind of decent career opportunities or the 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 option to kind of look beyond your current job, you kind of need to be near certain areas. So in the UK, it's like Cambridge, Guildford, that sort of thing. With more flexible working or more flexible positions available, and maybe not on a permanent basis. Again, it depends on the the discipline. I wonder if the, this will open people's eyes to. Right, I if I am looking for a new job, I am not limited to just what is in my area. I don't have to relocate and uproot my entire family. I could look at a potential position with another studio, if 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 a remote working structure fits that role, of course.
3: Mm. Oh yeah, and I think I think that's normal. Particularly, I mean, if you look at some of the biggest growing companies in the UK, you've got in you know, public companies in the UK, right? You've got Team Seventeen which is what? Nottingham and Wakefield. And you've got Sumo, which is Sheffield. And you've got Frontier, which is Cambridge, all out of London. Those companies trying to build publishing divisions are having a nightmare <laughs> because, <laughs> because because all of the PR and marketing people are in London. And um, that's where, like, if you look at where the publishing industry and the games industry, it's so centred in London, whereas the development industry is spread out and all the development teams are now trying to build their own publishing units and they're having to try and convince um, PR and marketing people to come out of the, of the capital and come to those sort of things. This actually makes that potentially more doable, makes that more accessible, more, option, you know, and they're all learning how to do these things. I think we'll see a bit of that. Um, and, you know, we've already seen like that that new that new studio from, from those couple of those former Respawn guys. Um, and they've realized they're now having to rebuild their entire studio around the idea that it'll be remote working and it just makes hiring people even easier. And they're actually in a, they're in, they're in LA, so they are in a hub of, uh, of development talent. Uh, they're telling me
1: they, but they also said that they definitely plan to have an office. Like the yes, they. But yeah. the, the fact that they're setting up as a remote studio is by necessity, not by choice. They're going to embrace the. They, they're going to embrace the parts of the necessity they think will work for them going forward. But one of those is not never having an office. That's a. Uh, that's pretty crucial because because uh, what they're aiming at is a kind of game development. And uh, Rob uh, Farhi, our regular Friday columnist, has written a bit about this today. It's a kind of development where. That kind of dispersed, remote, fully remote team is kind of not feasible. They they are pitching themselves at the AAA. They're pitching themselves at working on huge projects, and that's that's where it does start to get a little bit complicated. If if you yeah. foresee yourself having 150 staff, it's it's quite difficult to imagine yourself working but, fully remotely but, even now.
3: But there is one studio that does it, isn't there? Moon Studios. They're like 90 staff. They they're not. A, mm. They you started off as a small team. Um, when they made the first Ori, but then they got to the second one, they're now like triple A sized, almost or you know small triple A size anyway, and they've managed it, um, and I think that's
1: interesting. Um, but they've built them. I think that's interesting, but I also I feel like Ori is the kind of game that you could make with far fewer than ninety staff. Um, <laughs> I was going to say it, that. It, it's a lavishly like produced it- version of a fairly simple game, and I think that's very very different from like I don't know the. I forget the name of the new studio from the, the Respawn guys, but in any case... Gravity Well.
3: well yeah. yeah,
1: that's right. But they're probably going to be going for a very Respawny type game. It's probably going to be live service, millions of players, all of that stuff. It's a, it's a different kettle of fish entirely to, to yeah. what Moon
0: Studios yeah, is doing. Yeah,
3: but even, even, even the Moon Studios folks, they rent a villa out once a year and fly all their yeah. stuff to a, to, a, to a location so they can... A condensed version of, I guess, all their office meetings they'd normally have to have and brainstorming and all this kind of thing in like a in a in a small period of time. They even they still need to do that, and I'm sure that you know. And as and I think as what uh, i the Mike Satea um, says in his comments, you know, you are Moon Studios will have different challenges, will have different opportunities, but they'll have different challenges. And one of the challenges they said is that people get lonely working from home. There are people who don't have families, who don't um, uh, or do, but you know, the kids are at school and you know in the partners at work um and who end up you know when i started i used to work with james and, I'm, and marie we always work in the same office and um we used to be office every single day and then i went from that to working from home and i start, i joined my local slimming group just so i had company um it's it, it, pe- people get lonely and it doesn't actually suit everybody and you might end up putting having that options always um i think a uh, good
0: that is definitely a concern. Like cause I, as much as we, so, we obviously talked talked to this a little bit on our um, our remote working episode a few few weeks back. Um, and if anyone is is considering the idea of remote working permanently, like maybe go back and have a listen to that because we were talking on a slightly different different level than pandemic remote working but we talked about like yeah like uh, having those those conversations and so forth and like as much as there is there's slack and there's video chat and people can just it's not a social it's not you are not as connected with your teams so you do have to have a certain mentality a certain readiness to kind of work on your own in isolation to be able to do remote work
1: is one, one of the countries that's really coming out of lockdown in Europe, at least, is Germany. And one of the, one of the, the key reasons for that, Angela Merkel stated, was mental health, that yeah. it, it is not OK for people to be locked up inside. For this long, it's not okay with everybody. People have different circumstances. Some are surrounded by family. Some, you know, I, you know, I, li- I lived in Germany for a little while, and and particularly where where Merkel is based in Berlin, like most people live in like one bedroom flats. Like this is these are not. Very few people have gardens. You know what I mean? Like it, it's just those environments aren't going to be good for everybody, and it's why I really. I'm a little bit concerned when I see um, people sort of banging the drum for never for kind of like leaving office like office spaces behind entirely because it's too much of a risk and all of this it it, it just strikes me as a bit self-important and even though it it is fundamentally kind of coming from a good place I think a, a place of caring about other people in the health, health in, a, in a health sense it does forget the fact that people need to interact with each other and some people would really really struggle and and you'd hate to see narratives pushing businesses into that kind of uh, into those kinds of directions just because people can can make themselves heard to, to that degree well to, to a degree that the ceo of microsoft is addressing that idea in, a, in an interview with the new york times
2: mm, I, I found it interesting that nadella uh, was raising that issue about mental health and he was he was wondering what does burnout look like, and again, I think that's where it's it's worth reminding that's again different working from home usually and working from home during a pandemic, but I I do believe that 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 aspect like what does burnout look like if if it can be managed if management. At your company takes it seriously in the first place those issues would have existed I think at companies even outside of the current situation I think the bigger issue here is to make sure that managers know how to approach these issues mental health burnout in the first place outside of a remote working setup um, yeah. anyway I was just uh, that that made me think about that when I read that statement but earlier, I think I think that uh, um,
1: about- Nadella is kind of saying that though right it's like how do you rec- we know how to recognize burnout in an office? How do you recognize it when you can 't see the person face to face? How do you recognize it when your interaction with them is over a zoom call like it's yes. it's a different set of skills to look after your team properly and I actually think it raises a question of can you responsibly run a studio from the the human side of a certain size remotely because uh, you know it people who are struggling emotionally or, or psychologically aren't necessarily going to want to be upfront about the way they're feeling a lot of that stuff is evident if you can see them body language stuff like that that that's a lot of how you can pick this stuff up when that's off the table how do you no, notice that someone is having a problem if they don't just come out and say it and that that's the kind of thing where if you have a large enough organization people could very easily slip through the cracks i think it's a, it's a very real risk of being too um as as Madela said dogmatic about no longer working from offices you're 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 not really thinking about the nuance of the situation yeah
3: you're kind of leaving staff to look after themselves a little bit which I know is you know you think well that's fine but they have a habit of not um and uh, I've and it's it's something particularly for a big company or a big studio with offices around the world where staff could if they wanted to work 24 hours and um and what that might result in if people work differently there's a member of our team or I won't name them who um, uh, seems to be working constantly but actually disappears for several hours in the middle of the day and basically takes constant breaks regular breaks and that's how they like to work they, they, they find it a lot easier they don't you know the idea of doing eight straight hours or however many hours I don't, uh, and then, then cut and stopping and then um, and then doing it again the next day they don't like doing that and that's fine you know, in, you know we're quite a flexible place of working that's fine but it's it's the problem is when is someone, someone does it, who see, you know, it's, that becomes like... A, and and when, as managers, you end up having to suddenly work on everyone else's different ways they like to work. And it, it, it's, it's complicated and, and difficult and um, requires an entirely different way of thinking.
0: Nadella's not the only one who is obviously quite skeptical skeptical about this. Uh, Take Two boss Strauss Zelnick spoke to us around their latest financials, um, and he touched on this as well. They were talking about um, how, despite the delay to Kerbal Space Program Two, uh, the company hadn't missed a beat uh, in terms of production across uh, both that game and you know across the the whole of Two K's company. Uh, sorry, Take Two's company. Um, but he he suggested, yeah, stay at home orders don't generally benefit general well-being he said it's hard i find work harder when i'm at home you have fewer breaks you're sitting in the same place you don't have people around you and zoom calls can be draining in the extreme uh, our colleagues are performing incredibly well so clearly it's working but i think all of us are looking forward to the time when we can appropriately and safely to return to the office um i think that last point is particularly important like kind of the 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 safe return to the office like we've had briefings on how on the extent to which um company you know, our, our company is is preparing that office for people to gradually go back um but yeah I, it, again it kind of echoes and point of like you you cannot run large con- uh, companies responsibly and in a way that looks after your staff if everyone is working at home
1: yeah i i think but i think also you know it's important to understand what safely return to the office generally means um we probably are looking at a situation where COVID-19 will never ever be gone. So that's not what we're trying to do here. What, what really it's all about is preventing health services from being overwhelmed by new cases. Um, the reality is we're going to be returning to work, returning to offices, shops will be opening, restaurants will be opening while there are still new cases of COVID every day. That's not, that's not what people are trying to avoid here. They're trying to get past the peak so people can go back, go back to work while it's still, there is still a risk, but with appropriate measures in place to mitigate and, and minimise that risk. Um, the, 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 the return to work, the safe return to, to office spaces is going to happen before certain people feel that it truly is safe. I think the question is whether or not that, that definition of safe, the people that, that will never feel I will never feel comfortable going back to that kind of environment while COVID-19 is out there. I'm I'm not sure that's ever going to arrive you know the the a lot of epidemiologists really think this is just going to become this will be a constant threat there'll be it will be out there you'll be able to catch it at at any point but we'll just have more knowledge of it we'll have drugs to fight against it and so on and so forth but we're going to be asked to go back to work to go back to these spaces long before we have a have a vaccine it sounds like but but that's really not what we're kind of working towards it's an it's an unusual situation but i think a lot of people are going to be asked to do things not fully fully comfortable with like zelnik says He's eager to get back to work. Not everybody is. Um, get back to work in office. I mean, not, not everybody is. And, and people have different perspectives on what that kind of risk represents or how large that risk is. It's not, not a black and white uh, situation.
2: I'm finding it interesting because there's also the whether or not you want to go back to the office, but there's also events that are probably gonna happen again at some point. We touched upon it earlier as well. And I don't think events are gonna go anywhere, but I'm I've been seeing this week a few indie publishers on Twitter saying that regardless of events coming going back coming back, they will still not Attend physical events again, because if anything, the current pandemic has confirmed that maybe events were not necessarily worth it for them uh, in terms of how much it cost and the stress of it uh, compared to what they um, take out of it. It was actually um, a micros from normal Robots who were saying that um, his current plan was to not do physical events ever again because he's realized uh, in the past few years, but also the pandemic raised, um, uh, helped him realize that even more that none of most of the games he signed it actually didn't need the physical event to sign that game because he either knew the developers already or saw them online and stuff like that i just yeah i find it interesting that um some publishers developers are already thinking about how physical events maybe won't be a thing for them anymore
1: yeah i think it probably is some somewhat easier decision to make for a company i know more robots which has a staff of a few people and handles very small games uh, for for a for a company like that, I think you know fifty thousand sales probably looks like a pretty amazing return, and and whether or not you need to to be on the show floor at PAX or whether the kind of presence that you can have on the show floor at a PAX or a, an E three or whatever really adds up to very much, I, I think that I, I this is in Rob's column as well. Uh, I I agree with Rob as I as I often do that you, you can't really replicate this stuff online uh, a, a certain scale at the very least like on the conference side there's no real substitute for the kind of the learning and knowledge sharing that goes goes on in a uh, in-person co- uh, developer conferences you know the, the biggest of which is gdc but they're all over the world and they all play specific roles for their communities and bringing people together and and those kinds of opportunities just will not will never be accurately simulated by a digital presence and i think the same is true of stuff like e3 stuff like pax stuff like egx Obviously, full disclosure. Our company runs some of those events, but these these are these are purely objective opinions. Like I, I don't think, particularly if you're if you're releasing a, a larger game with uh, with a with a much bigger target audience to 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 find and to to reach, I just don't see how you do without events on that
3: scale. The thing is, for indies as well, like exhibiting at some of these events isn't actually that expensive. It depends on the event. But um, the um, if you've just taken out of screen, for instance, and um, and there's actually I love the story of Overcooked. Right, they didn't they couldn't afford any focus testing, so they um, took it to all the events they possibly could and got people to play it on the show floor and jot it down on <laughs> everything they did, and then they that's how they tested the game. That's actually not an uncommon thing. It happens a load. Happens with a lot of indie devs, and then you've got things like um, even out from a from a business side. You know, we run our investment summit. We're doing a digital one next week. It's actually the biggest one we've ever done. It's probably going to be uh, probably this week actually when this video, this podcast goes live. Um, and so it's, it's got loads of cool things about it. But we know one of the best things about our investment summit isn't the talks. It probably is the meetings. But then the second thing is the networking. It's the little lunches in between. It's the people sitting down in the corner showing each other each showing each other their games on their on their laptops. It's the little lunch area where they sort of show show each other what they're working on and get little ad hoc surprise meetings that's not really possible in the digital space we're really struggling to sort of replicate that and and i and i so i and i think that you know i think events definitely have a place i think they'll need to change though i think that's i think they're I think just was, to make but, people what, more what, confident
1: yeah what do you, what do you think because if this is the question i ask i ask myself quite a lot because You know, we're we're in a situation now where I genuinely didn't think this would be the case, where like Greece is going to be accepting international tourism again in July. I would never have thought that at the start of April. It's changed quite quickly. Certain countries are are, are very close to having dozens of cases a day that that were having hundreds, not four or five weeks ago. Um, We're talking like, uh temperature checks at the border there's all kind of like like spot tests when you land at an airport and you have to wait 3 hours before you're allowed allowed out into the country things like that all these things are being discussed um and obviously the impetus behind all of this is that that life continues as normal but these are the and these are the checks it's not it's not that you're forever never going to be able to sit more than 2 meters away from someone in a restaurant that doesn't seem to be the kind of changes we're living with so what do you think uh shows look like in you know the quote unquote new normal because i don't think it's social distancing i think shows go on but what what changes about them
3: i don't know I, uh, so what did so what did mm. one of our bosses say something about an ikea system where events are one way um we <laughs> have one way system and yeah. events that was something that somebody mentioned um uh you know, I mean, the thing is, we obviously involve VGX. They can have quite a lot of space between all their stands. But then I go to some, I go to some other events, and you can't even move. I, I don't. It's this. It's. I mean, but then you're right, though. This thing changes so quickly. Like, you know, we could in a couple of weeks' time, everything could have spiked again, and suddenly we're all back locked or down. Or you know, turns out that vaccine that Oxford people are producing a million of, even before they have finished testing it. Um, is like oh actually you might have that by October suddenly it's like well, I, I these things move so quickly but um, I don't really know, I think the events I think you almost have to feel it right, you have to see what you know, are consumers going to be nerd, or consumers or business people are they going to are we going to see a, a massive reduction in attendance, are people desperate to get back, I
1: don't I, I think that's a oh, probable near term solution yeah. Um, but yeah. i don't think it's a forever solution i mean I, I think this is the thing when people talk about how the world will change or the new normal i genuinely don't think that this one pandemic is going to re- re- result in every consumer show being one way and socially distanced for the rest of time Like I, i feel like that's such an extreme extrapolation from the current situation which we to be very clear we're not in a position to truly kind of have the have the perspective on, the right perspective on at this stage like the the, everything in the country was shut down uh four weeks ago and we're only now starting to see things opening up again like the the whole thing could look very very different in two months time as it as it is in countries all over all over europe like it's slow and steady and that must be done and i I think it's it's unrealistic to expect even a 1000 person developer conference to happen until the end of this year but i actually do believe you're going to see smaller regional developer conferences taking place in 2020.
0: talking about the effect of the pandemic and the lockdowns on digital distribution obviously kind of backing up widely seen uh, data that more more and more people are buying digitally um and he believes that the the, you know, the stay-at-home orders have, have caused a spike in existing growth so it's not not new it is it's accelerated in an existing trend as it were um he said A lot of people believe that whatever trends existed before this pandemic will be accelerated by the pandemic. I've been saying for a long time that we're seeing a shift to digital distribution. We do expect the trends to continue, but we don't expect physical goods to go away, nor would we like them to go away. It's a terrible thing to pat yourself on the back in the face of tragedy. That's not how we feel. We do think that... Providing great at-home entertainment is a service in times like this. We love the fact that you can connect with greater communities and friends all around the world when you're playing online video games. Was there a push to more at-home entertainment during this time? Absolutely yes. Did that affect our results positively? Unquestionably. I do think though that you're going to see that this represents a bit of a sea change and you're going to see more of an interest in, on an ongoing basis in interactive entertainment even as this ends. It's kind of that last point in particular that I'd like to unpack. It's like we've seen spikes uh, around covid-19 of more engagement with video games and there's the question of will that die down again back to normal levels or have we shifted more people towards using games as a as a leisure time not just in the you know throes of lockdown but on a general daily basis will more people turn to games as their form of entertainment yes good moving on right <laughs> next topic. the uh, uh, i i actually did a tweet
3: about this so um, for the first four months of the year, this is UK data, console sales are up 48% for the year. Now, obviously, the Switch is part of that, which is in its third year of its life cycle. But PS4 sales are up. Xbox One sales are up quite a bit, actually. Now, obviously, that's because people are sitting at home and they've got something to do. But these, these are new customers, right? These are new gamer customers. They might be, or maybe Laps, maybe people that used to play games 10 years ago, don't have much time to do it recently, but they're new people that have come into the video game ecosystem, and not in their not not in their thousands, but hundreds of thousands. And it's and this is this is an audience that, um, or a PlayStation Xbox one particularly, will need to be thinking about when they're to the next console because they're not going to be ready to jump to another machine in six months' time. But um, but it's also a um it's a new it's a it's an audience of people who are discovering interactive intent maybe for the first time maybe they haven't played a game in 10 years and they're completely surprised at just how great games are how interact you know how online they are now are and how connected they are they're discovering these things and that's really cool um for our industry um and um and uh, uh so i think and I, I think you know suddenly that all as soon as they're all allowed to, as soon as they all go back outside again they go right packing the consoles away well, yes some will um but i, I think that we have we've, we've We've accelerated an expansion, um, an audience expansion, in, in particular the console arena. Anyway, and I'm I'm sure it's in mobile as well and PC. Um, so I think yeah, I think we probably will. But um, I mean, Strauss talking about the sort of rise to digital as well. It's also that physical is also sold really well. You know, physical goods are doing really well as well. So he's right when he says you know, physical goods aren't about to go away because this. This pan, this pandemic didn't just result in loads of people downloading and nobody buying boxes. It, it resulted in both markets growing. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree with them. <laughs>
2: yeah, I me too. I, <laughs> I, I, I
1: just feel like we're we're in all we can do is guess whether that's going to be the case. I mean, as Chris says, if if you if by if through these kind of unique circumstances, you end up with you know a million more people buying a console you've got to assume that some proportion of that continues to play that console i mean i in my own household my 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 girlfriend laura she uh, bought a switch for animal crossing because we could kind of see the 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 pandemic coming we went out into to glasgow and went to every single shop until we we found a a first edition switch in argos or whatever and snapped it up and she's played animal crossing every single day and and i would only i can only assume that she's going to buy more games for it after that um, as Chris says, will everyone? Probably not. Will some? Definitely. How big will that be? It's really hard to say. I mean, I, the, the thing is, it's not like gaming truly needed this boost. Um, there are, you know, a billion or more game people who play games all over the world. It's already a mainstream hobby. It it, it might have reached a few more people, but it already was in the hands of, of a great, great, great many. It, we're... It, it's kind of tempting always within the games industry to kind of speak from this long standing position that we're this kind of niche that needs to prove ourselves to the world and all of that. But that's not been the case for years and years and years. Games have been like the most widely, one of the most on a par with film and TV as, as a mass entertainment medium for years already. This is, cemented a bit of that and maybe dragged in a few people or converted people who dabbled into more consistent players Um, but I I don't think it's kind of really dramatically moved the needle from where it already moved over the past decade or so.
0: Yeah that makes sense and particularly when you factor in mobile you know you've got as you say billions of people play games on mobile they may not may not fully acknowledge what they are playing as video games, but Candy Crush, definitely a video game, you know Um, Fortnite, Fortnite is hugely popular kind of, as you say, kind of proves that games are mainstream, games are massive and and that can't be just you know, millions and billions of of kids and teenagers as is so often stereotypically thought, it is people from all kind of walks of life, all kind of all all kinds of demographics Um, Yeah, I I
1: think that uh, possibly the more important um more important part of this trend happens from here if, if anything I mean where if you follow the film industry the the big conversation at, at the moment is whether Chris, Christopher Nolan's new film Tenet is going to open in July it's kind of still scheduled to I think they released a new trailer today looks great it's exactly the kind of uh, entertainment that the film industry thrives on and relies on to stay kind of solvent and to support this absurd business model that it has but Tenet can't reasonably open in a world where you can only sell one out of every 10 cinema seats because you need to keep two metres dif- distance between patrons. If it opened in every single cinema screen in the world, it probably wouldn't quite make what it would do under normal circumstances. So does that open? Does that get delayed? Does the, does the big screen blockbusters film experience exist at all in 2020? I mean, th- these are not trends that are over for a lot of these other industries my my girlfriend Laura she's screenwriter she works in the TV industry and right now everything's okay but you know she's she's writing on a TV show that, that that's kind of waiting for its green light and that green light may or may not come based on whether or not they can gather 200 people in one place and shoot the next season of the TV show that's um these are these are problems that are far 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 from over for for those for what we would consider to be kind of competing industries for people's time and a lot of people are saying you know it, it's not so much the schedules of content now it's what what does netflix's slate look like in 2021 when it hasn't been able to film a new tv show for eight months and and there again gaming could surge even further ahead because while there probably are issues in terms of software production right now, I, it's not going to be as dramatic. I think the Nexon interview, um, forget, Owen Mahoney, the interview with him, he, he gave some like, pretty good quotes about this thing. Uh, the supply side to us is what's really interesting. Angelina Jolie is not making movies right now. Actors are unemployed because they can't get together to make a movie. They cannot film a movie today. You can't get get together and have a sports game. It requires human interaction. But as we speak, we've got thousands of developers and live game operators who are making content in their pyjamas from home, if their cat or their baby or whoever is there with them. Um, so, yeah, there's a little bit of negative for us, but, uh, but a lot of positive. And he later says... The party is clearly in the video game industry right now, which is a level of kind of um, wallowing in success that is rare at the moment from video game (laughs) companies. But but yes, the party is in the video game industry. That's a direct quote from Nexon. But that kind of paints a picture, right? That that even if we're able to go out and sit in a beer garden in two months time, that doesn't mean that anyone's making content in whole other entertainment industries, but Video games will continue, and that is that is to very much to its benefit.
0: And that again kind of speaks to the whole remote working conversation we've already had. The fact that our industry can continue, ad content can continue to be produced, no matter how far apart the teams are. Mm. some some seem to be better at it than others. Like I think Nintendo's
3: warning. Like you know, I I know a few companies that have worked have gone from work from home, and they they've got challenges, and things are being delayed slightly. But you know they—they're also seeing productivity in areas they hadn't seen productivity before. I know, um, for example, um, somebody that I'm close to is, is at the moment um, is trying to get rid of bugs and do fixes. And in the office, he's doing double the amount of fixes at home because just there's no distractions. But I also know, for instance, the Minecraft Dungeons team really struggled to do local co-op testing. So there's there are obviously pros and cons, um, and some companies are. Uh, are doing better than others. um I can't remember what my point was, but I ultimately agree. I think we're going to see um, there's a lot of games being made right now, and um and they, you know, they might be a little bit late, but they're 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 going to be coming out just as perhaps the TV and film industries. I mean, unless things start up soon for them, um the TV and film industries might be lacking in some some big content. Although, of course, in film, in particular, cinema, there are a lot of films that were supposed to be coming out this month supposed to have come out last month james bond for instance there's the chris nolan movie but if they do get pushed back suddenly you know they're potentially streaming options and stuff like that so they do have content um it's just um uh, tv in particular perhaps
1: but i think that's 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 one place where those industries are kind of frightened of embracing the change because you know we talked a bit about how the pandemic isn't necessarily going to change everything about the way things are done but it's probably going to push going to accelerate progress in areas that were already progressing before. So companies were becoming more flexible. Now that this has happened, they've been forced to implement systems that might have taken them years to do otherwise. I think in film particularly... They they almost don't want to release a new Christopher Nolan movie on on streaming because if Mm-mm. it does really well, then literally the argument of having cinemas at all just completely disappears overnight, and the whole industry disappears. So so we've had like Trolls World Tour and Scoob and these. I kinds, was gonna yeah. say
2: that yeah, I think that's
1: interesting. Uh, but you know, I, I think they're reluctant to do it with a Bond or I mean because look, let's face it, if they released the James Bond movie tomorrow and it was like I don't know a batch, you you're the Bond guy what what would be what would be too much for you as a price to sit down and watch bond on your big t v tomorrow with your family what what price uh, would you pay what would be too much
0: I would probably pay like ten maybe fifteen i think if it went beyond twenty i'd i'd stop um but equally, even even
1: like, if it was never coming out of the cinema you would just wait oh no if i if it uh... Yeah, because no, this but, yeah. is the question. This is the question. This is the question that the film industry has to deal with, and it's and it's one that the games industry just doesn't have to deal with. This is already how they distribute their content, you know. So we're we're kind of like perfectly positioned to take advantage of uh, of the situation in in terms of reaching people because it's already how we reach people.
3: Mm. Yeah, well, it's interesting because um, obviously, uh, for me, I really wanted to see that new Pixar movie when the names escaped me came out like on. Oh, came out two weeks before the lockdown never got round to seeing it um uh, Karen and I were gearing up to go and watch it and then um the cinemas closed and they're releasing it on Disney plus I think they've already done it in America and they're gonna do it over here at some point um and uh uh great <laughs> I'll watch it on that instead but yeah I, I think I oh well, you know I don't know I don't know I, I don't you know, as I'm a cinema goer, I love it. I I've been really. Dis- I don't really want to watch James. But the fir- first time I watch a new James Bond film, I don't want to watch it on my screen. I want to watch it in um, um in the cinema with a bag of popcorn that cost me a hundred quid. Um, but um, but um, it, yeah. I. But you're right. It, well, that it, well, you know. There's a lot of money to lose, isn't it? Because of course, when you make when these things are budgeted, when these things are created, they're banking on the box office money, and then they're banking on the DVD money, and then the TV deal comes after that. That's how they budget for these things, and suddenly you're having to reverse the model. Um, you know, is, they, yeah, that's where the problem lies. But if, you know, if you're Netflix and you need content um, at the end of the year because you can't put out Stranger Things or something, then maybe you you stump up the money to um, offset that. Um, you know the offset the loss that Warner Brothers might have uh, might suffer um, as a result of not having the Christopher Nolan movie on <clears> them <throat> on a,
0: on at the cinema. Well, speaking of interesting business models, offering plenty of content, <laughs> how's that I was about to, like? to
1: say, there, there's a segue right here, Madge. But, <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs>
0: <to say>. PlayStation <laughs> Now has more than 2.2 million subscribers, uh, roughly six years after it first launched. Um, it's actually a hell of a, uh, an uptick from last year so by the end of April 2020 2.2 million users or more than 2.2 million users end of March 2019 so just over a year ago 1 million users so it's had a big year I'm trying to think when when was that big big marketing push they did that was last that was October right so that's obviously kind of done its trick but the takeaway that a lot of people have perhaps rightly taken from this is that 2.2 million while impressive, is still five times less than the 10 million Xbox Game Pass subscribers uh, that Microsoft has managed in, what, a couple of years? Yeah, three years. Three years. Um, PlayStation obviously fantastic brand and is market leader in terms of the, the home console space, in terms of the, the traditional kind of um, selling games individually xbox is steaming ahead in the subscription space and i'm trying to work out why i mean obviously playstation now would probably saw if it had like all of the uh you know if, if last of us 2 was going to be day and date on playstation now maybe maybe that would entice a few more people um i have to confess i don't actually know what sort of games are on playstation now are they are, are all the first party ones on there well, no, no.
2: Not no. all of them, no. no. I mean,
1: I think it just just this month got Spider-Man, which is, uh, what, eight, yeah, 18 exactly. months old at this point. So all, all Sony first-party stuff does eventually reach there, I think. I, I actually, I, I swapped my PlayStation for an Xbox a while back because I'd had a PlayStation for the entire generation so far and I wanted to catch up on the stuff I'd been missing. So I'm actually not that up-to-date on what PlayStation now looks like as a games catalogue. I I feel like... It's a fair comparison because fundamentally, they're both subscription-based monthly fee services. One has 10 million, the other has 2.2. There are obviously differences, but those differences don't make that an unfair comparison. Those differences are the reasons why there's a big gap between the two. So let's just say that up front because I'm pretty sure that, that that would be kind of Sony's defense on that one. But I think it's also worth pointing out that PlayStation Now didn't even have the option to download a game and play it locally until September 2018. So realistically, it's not been competing quite on the... Again, but this doesn't mean that we shouldn't compare the two because these are strategic choices made by Sony and Microsoft, respectively. And one or the other can be a better choice or a more effective choice in this space. It took a while for Sony to pivot its service to a way that was better for players. And that's on Sony's shoulders. I think personally, it was a strategic mistake on its part to start with streaming and then only add... Only really added downloads when it was clear that it was really working well for Xbox Game Pass. But I think, I think in terms of like as close a comparison as you can make, the comparison is really between sort of end of 2018 and now across both services. And you've seen some good growth for PlayStation now in that time. But the, the key difference is the kind of games that you can play on them. And that's where Game Pass is pretty far ahead, frankly.
2: Yeah, interestingly, I'm very much a PlayStation person, and that's very much why PS Now is actually not interesting for me, because I play first-party games on PlayStation when they come out, and PS Now has them with such a delay that I have actually no interest in in subscribing, because I would have already played Spider-Man by the time it reaches PlayStation Now. So as much as I'm mm, not an Xbox person, just by habit more than anything... Uh, I would be re- I would be way more interested in subscribing at Game Pass because they have that day and date uh, release. Day and date is that the expression? Day day, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, sorry, I thought I was getting it wrong for some reason and because they have that release on on the day. Uh, it makes it much more interesting to me uh, mm. than, than PS now, but that's just my personal opinion.
3: No, it, well, it's, it's it's I mean it's, that's it, right? The reason why um, Xbox Game Pass is doing so much better is Microsoft went for it. And PlayStation are cautious around it, and the thing is, you can understand why um, Xbox. This is always I always find this sort of trans, console transitions quite interesting, because um, this is where there's one company that doesn't really have that much to lose, and that's Xbox, so they can take all the risks they want. And there's one company that has it all to lose, and they're naturally more cautious, and they want to protect themselves. I mean, um, PlayStation now is nothing for a long time. It was like you know, it was the Guy Kai deal, wasn't it? And they just try to make it. Well, it was, well, we've invested in it with. Two, with We've, we're testing the technology. It is what it is. And then over the last, I think I'd say even towards the end of last year, that's when PlayStation went right. They did a massive mainstream marketing campaign. They put games like Horizon in the uh, in the package, and they went right. We're going for it now. And in that taste, they've added like now a million users or something. Now that's excellent. But um, but the um, I can understand what this is the thing. I find this fascinating. Not not, not I don't know how many people. I don't know if people talked about it too much. Maybe I've, I've just missed the conversation. But before this generation of console. PlayStation had only had, I think, four games that had broken the 10 million barrier, as in first-party games, So, and they were all Gran Turismo. Um, there, there was never any other game that they had made before the PlayStation 4 that had done more than 10 million in this generation you've got Uncharted 4 done 16 million Spider-Man's done over 13 million um, God of War's done 10 million um, Last of Us Remaster's done 10 million and there's another one I've completely forgotten um, Horizon's done 10 million yeah that's done 10 million as well in fact Gran Turismo's only done 8 million um, it, I guess it's not a proper I don't know anyway but the um, PlayStation's had a real massive success with first party games and they will want The Last of Us 2 to do 10 million right and when you're sitting there trying to sell 10 million boxes making loads of money that's what your budget's around sitting there and going I'm going to put this game at the same time in a subscription service that costs I don't know how much PlayStation now costs but whatever you know $10 a month whatever um, uh, well that actually doesn't suit them that's not what they want you know they, they're they getting people happily walking to shops well not at the moment but by ordering online or downloading games um, for um, uh, at $60 a, a pop and that they don't want to. They don't want to lose that. And so actually, they're going. Well, we're going to enhance our subscription offering by putting games that are only eighteen months out. But there might come a point. I think what's interesting for PlayStation is that there, there must be is what. And this is what Jim Ryan said to us last year when we interviewed them And it's what they seem to be doing. Is they're getting ready for pivoting towards that if necessary. So if they uh, if they get to a point where. Actually, subscription is something that's really taken off. Everybody wants to do subscriptions now. They can just make the switch. They've got the service, they've got the games, or they can just quickly go, right, okay, now it's day and date, um, and, uh, and this is where we can move. But right now, their current business model works for them so well that they're wanting to switch. I think the only thing that PlayStation has, doesn't have, that Xbox does, I think Xbox has been very smart, is Xbox have bought a load of studios that make games very quickly. Whereas PlayStation Studios, almost all of them are big triple. I think they all are massive triple A studios. You know, some of them, like Santa Monica, has only made one game this generation, and, um, and Naughty Dog's done, done a few, and Insomniac's done a few. But largely speaking, they take four or five years between their games, and that doesn't lend itself well to a subscription service, where you need regular content going in all the time to keep people engaged and also to keep to attract more people in. Whereas Xbox you know you can' already starting to see the fact you know but, releasing more and more stuff
1: but crucially but and, and this thing so like, yeah, I yeah I think it would actually be interesting to see what Microsoft's approach to subscription and this kind of service would be if it if this generation had gone better for them because yes I mean obviously it you know Sony's the winner of this generation by by a long long way so it has everything to lose Microsoft's got nothing to lose but at the same time uh, what it's doing in in terms of Game Pass and, and xCloud and all of that lines up with Microsoft's broader strategy as a company. And I think there's a very strong argument that it would be doing it anyway, even if it had sold twice as many consoles this year, because that's the kind of company that Microsoft wants Xbox to be. Um, there, there's, uh, there's very kind of credible rumours that this is pretty much the pitch that had to be made for Microsoft to retain faith in Xbox at all. So it not about... How many consoles sold necessarily? They could still be pushing very, very hard on Game Pass, even if they'd sold 100, you know, 40 million more consoles were, were much, much closer um, in terms of success to, to PlayStation. But it also just shows mm, that that difference, though. Even if it were the case, even if this is purely Microsoft just just having nothing to lose or whatever, even if that is the case, it still teaches us a little bit about what works in subscription. And for me, going back to what Marie just said about her experience. And Netflix has proved this as well. Netflix started with a model where it was licensing older films, older TV shows and showing them. It really only took off when it was um, putting stuff that it made itself in there. Uh, appointment television, stuff like Stranger Things, House of Cards. This is what made Netflix. And I think that, that we're kind of seeing that as being a big deal in games as well. That PlayStation Now is never going to be that big a deal potentially and this is just you know this is this is a strategic kind of guess on my part unless it's willing to put its first party stuff in they're pretty damn close to launch date that that is a very i get the reasons why they're not doing it but that is a huge limiting factor in how popular that service can ever be because that seems to be pretty important to every other subscription service out there for, for every kind of content um, Spotify, Spotify gets, gets huge upticks in listeners and signups when, it, when it's kind of launching new albums on the day they come out from major artists Microsoft is seeing the same Netflix is the same Amazon Prime is the same Creating content specifically for these services is what makes these services work Sony's not willing mm. to embrace that I get why I think there, there must surely come a point where if this is ever going to be important to them, they have to bite the bullet on that one and I, and I wonder how hard that transition is going to be for them
3: well, I will point out as well though that mm-hmm. Xbox Game Pass has ten million people in it, right? Mm-hmm. And it costs ten dollars a month, um, and that's a hundred million a month. That's, you know, it's a, and it's yeah. and it's not it's not completely you know. There's all these one dollar deals and three months half. It's a, it's up, a
1: billion right. dollar ish business a year, basically. In, yeah. Potentially.
3: Yeah. and you know, Last of Us Two does $60, dollars. $60. Let's say that does what it what it might do. We say ten million. That's the last one did, um, and that's sixty. Um, that's $600 million. Now, you know, you, you then throw in Dreams and, and Ghosts of June and you think, actually, PlayStation's probably making roughly the same revenue from its first-party games and they're not having to sign deals with indies and giving you know, chucking stuff money at them in order to get their games into the system as well. So it's, it's there is a... But there is a point. I think PlayStation... I mean, from, as I say, this was the conversation I had last year with, with PlayStation, is that they are aware that it might happen. And when I said to... I said, when are you going to do day and date? Jim Ryan said, look, A year ago, we didn't have any PS4 games or two years ago, we didn't have any PS4 games in this system at all. And now we've got a load of PS4 games, so things are changing very quickly for us. And you know, maybe in a year's time we will have day and date, or maybe in two years time, you know, they're going to play it by ear. And that's actually part of the reason behind their restructure. At least that's the reason they give, is that PlayStation was very slow at making decisions, very sl- clumbersome at making, you know, moving because Europe, Europe acted on its own and US acted on its own and Japan acted on its own. And although it meant that they had all these benefits of being local. To their to their various markets, and it definitely brought benefit to them. It also meant that when it came to big making big decisions, such as reacting to subscriptions or reacting to streaming or anything like that, PlayStation really it wasn't in the hasn't been in the past in the best place to react quickly. And I, and I think if that's true, if everything they said they're, they're, they're planning to do is, is in order to do that, I suspect that if Game Pass continues on the trajectory that it's been on, um, we will see um, we will see play you know day and date PlayStation games
1: in PlayStation Now. Mm shortly yeah i think a lot a lot's going to depend on what what happens with game pass when the new consoles launch if that i mean if that really boosts the game pass subscriber numbers and it, and it may do um if, it, if it's a console that's launching with that central to its message um, i think that could that could really boost the, those subscriber figures quite quickly it could be a, a two billion a year business by the end of by the end of 2021 uh, that, yeah. that's when it's going to start seeming like a race that maybe Sony needs to run maybe we'll see Sony buy some studios that can do the quick game thing because it's a very good point uh, that you made there Chris that you know God of War took 5-6 years to make that's not really going to do it on on a subscription mm-hmm. service I know.
3: mean I mean, you obviously need those games you need yeah, those 10-pole yeah. games but it's it's the ones in between right and, it, and that's, that's the thing that Xbox have been buying they, they think well we've got Gears and we've got the Rare game and we've got the Halo and we've got that kind of stuff but what are we going to put in between and that's where obsidian and ninja theory and, and those folks come in and and it's um and, and playstation don't really have that um i mean they can obviously commission games you know they're, they're more than capable of do it and they have third party relations but um you feel that they they sort of need to go down that route and in fact also what um xbox has that playstation doesn't have is now a pc audience so Game Pass isn't a Xbox exclusive thing. It's it's on PC and Microsoft we even got to the point now of not just putting all their games on PC, they're actually making games only for PC. I know that's Microsoft have been doing that this entire life, but Gears Tactics was a P, is a PC at the moment PC exclusive. It will be coming to Xbox, but then they've got Microsoft Flight, they've got Age of Empires 4. They're continuing to invest in that platform as well. So not only are they are they attacking the console space with Game Pass, they're attacking the the PC's market as well and that's so you kind of feel, even if PlayStation does pivot quickly and move quickly, you still would have to say Xbox is in a quite a commanding position to, to be quite powerful in, in, the, in the subscription world.
0: Going back to what you, you mentioned, um, third-party relations, I'm intrigued to see how other publish, third-party publishers, their attitude changes towards um, subscriptions of these two services grow. So I say that because, yeah, Xbox... For, yeah, first party titles are day and day they are straight away on available on game pass but they haven't released uh, they, they haven't released a, a a great many compared to the playstation in terms of playstation's big tentpole games um playstation obviously like as we've said don't have enough uh, have enough of a regular cadence of um huge tentpole first party titles to warrant doing that on um on playstation now. But you have seen some third-party games, um, nothing huge, I have to admit. But go day and day on um, Xbox Game Pass. So the the one I'm thinking about, the, the example I'm thinking of is um, Journey to the Savage Planet, um, new game, you know, debut game from new studio, independent studio, but published by Private Division, which is obviously uh, take uh, two, yeah, Take Two's new kind of publishing label. EA run their own subscriber service, EA Access. Ubisoft has Uplay Plus, albeit only on... You know, both of those are... Well, Uplay is only on PC. I'm just in- interested to see if, if we'll see more third parties willing to put their titles day and day on either PlayStation Now or Xbox Game Pass and the effect that that would have on growing those services.
3: Um, I don't think you'll see it with big games. I think you'll see it maybe... With, I, I think you'll see it with new IP or... Or people trying to do the uh, classic, um, um, what's it called, uh, rocket league trick of put, making it subscriber on one platform and then selling loads of units on the other. Um, but um, I, I just don't think it makes. I don't think it makes commercial sense. Um, but then you don't get that with Netflix, right? The BBC don't put all their stuff out on Netflix first; they put it out on the BBC first, and then they sell it to Netflix two, three years down the line. And it, and you get that actually with lot of, or you know, maybe it, it, yeah you might get a localised distribution deal where it's exclusive to Netflix in a certain region. But you don't... You don't... You You know, you don't... I just think
0: that's how it'll work when it comes to the
3: big third-party games.
0: Um, but, I, as much as um, I said that, I can't imagine third parties suddenly turning down like you know, the opportunity to retail sales. So I, I almost... I did actually just look up, is, is Doom Eternal on Xbox Game Pass? Of course it's not, because Beth- that's a big release for the, Bethesda. They need those sales.
1: But Doom was added to Game Pass right on the release of... Uh, the week before the release of Doom Eternal, which is one Right, movie. that you makes can, sense. You can do this. Uh, I will say that Jones Savage's plan was not day-in-day day on Game Pass. It followed on about three months after launch. Something like I that. Apologize. Launched, I apologise. Launched late January. But, but, but it's still a reasonable... Uh, the thing with Game Pass is, particularly from that third-party perspective... Journey to the Savage Planet, Uh, yeah, from a very promising studio run by Alex Hutchison, who was the creative director on Far Cry 3 and and at least one Assassin's Creed game. might be Brotherhood, which is my favourite. That was from his new studio. Problem was, it reviewed poorly, sold poorly. And I think when you're in that position as a studio and Microsoft comes along and says, here's some money, you might go, oh, all right, we'll take that money. I think you saw the same thing with Metro Exodus, which um, obviously received uh, I would imagine a fairly healthy payday uh, 4A Games and was it 505 published that
0: yeah um, yeah
1: 505
0: no no no, Kosh Media
1: well yeah 505 co- no no that's Digital Brothers isn't it why is it Deep Silver yeah like, so. Deep Silver anyway. yeah um that was a series that, you know, I think combined the previous two games and sold 4 million copies, and that's only on the long tail as well. They certainly weren't much more than a million sellers when they came out. It's uh, very impressive. I, I really like that game. It's, uh, it's beautiful to look at. It's really, really big. It's epic. It's AAA in every respect. Epic comes along with a big check and says, you, you know, you can sell this everywhere if you want, but can we have it exclusive on PC for one year, and this is worth whatever this this kind of brings you up this means that you don't have to worry about the first half million sales on PC you're like well you know this this might not actually return that much money anyway why not take it i think think these services on the third party level probably end up end up working with games that are not big hits i guess is the point Stuff, stuff that's stumbling or is, or is risky or that may or may not make a huge amount of money. I mean, Borderlands 3 is another example of a game that went exclusive on Epic Game Store. I mean, you have to assume that, that when it comes to these, those kinds of deals, it's about a publisher going, how many do we expect to sell? Is this really going to help us break even? And if they say yeah. yes, then they accept the money. Yeah.
3: Well, James, did you mean the Outer Worlds by chance rather than just, Outer Worlds? That I might, I might have meant the Outer Worlds because <laughs> you said <laughs> private division. Know. You said private division, and I'm pretty sure Journey to yeah, the Savage yeah. Planet is part. But that sure was far. to do
1: with the <laughs> Obsidian acquisition, anyway. But it?
3: that was that was partly due to the Obsidian acquisition. But it was interesting because Take to Strauss Zelnick has been very sceptical of subscription services for his games, and then the Outer Worlds, which of course was because of Obsidian being bought by Microsoft. But that was a Take Two published title, and it gave him a chance to. Um, uh, his skepticism to be won over, I guess. Um, but um, but no, I, I do. Yeah, I, I. Phoenix Point is a game that was, you know, site, you know, Microsoft paid to have in Game Pass um, as an example. But those are the sort of games I can imagine. You know, thirty person team games maximum. I don't, you know, again, you're never going to get Grand Theft Auto Six getting day and date with
0: PlayStation there. No, fair point. I think that is all we have time to discuss this week. We're going to be back on Monday with your usual show, uh, Discussing News, and we are still quietly working on those secret projects uh, where we'll be adding more value to this. uh, Oh, God, adding more value. That's a horrible marketing term. I'm not (laughs) going to say that. That's awful. (laughs) I'm going to leave that in just to kind of... Well, just, for, just for, for all points. we know, but
1: we'll be subtracting value for some listeners. You know, we may well be subtracting value. May not value. like the new shows, so you
0: know. <laughs> We're going to be adding different uh, kind of spin-off series of this show that will be out, you know, once a month, a um, couple of times a month, uh, in addition to your usual Monday show. I'm stumbling so I'm gonna just bail on <laughs> did this.
3: You, did you get any of that right, James? We're once a I, month, several times a month. I don't <laughs> know. <month>. Well, <laughs> no, am okay, I?
0: Right. So okay, I will clarify. There are two there are two spin-off series of this podcast. Each one will do one episode per month. That is in the works, that is coming. We are on that yeah, we have more on that soon, so keep your ears peeled for that. In the meantime, find this standard weekly news podcast on uh, on all podcasting platforms of your choice. Go to our website, you can get your daily dose of news, insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. I'm going to bail before I fail this anymore.
2: I love
3: the idea of us adding value to a free podcast.
1: Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, think, I think the name for this show should now be the, the standard news podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, that was glorious.